Good morning. I don't know if you've ever watched some time-lapse movies. I find them fascinating. One that I did see was a man who took a photograph of his child every month until the child was 18 years of age. He then compressed them into a one-minute video. It was amazing to see the birth of a child growth right up to adulthood. You may even have seen it with a seed. I know we would use it in schools, a seed in the ground right to the point where it withers. We're commencing our study on the book of Ephesians. And what I want to do this morning is to set Ephesians into its context and its significance in the New Testament. You see, the book of Ephesians is a time-lapse history right throughout the whole of the New Testament. Whenever you take the book and pull all the strands out of the book, and also from the various passages in the New Testament, you get a diagram, something like this, which I have created. I don't expect you to memorize it or to learn it off by heart, but what I want to do is to show you how the theme of Ephesians is like a time-lapse right throughout the whole of the New Testament, right from its beginning until as a church it withers. And the reason is there, but you have to go through the Bible step by step and draw out various passages so as you get the full picture. I'm very grateful this morning to Sharon, and Sharon is going to read for me and is going to continue with the readings because there are a significant number of readings, and the readings will be on the screen. And so we have the first reading. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But in taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you, if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus mention that we have of Ephesus, Ephesians, in the Bible. Paul was on his second missionary journey, which the little diagram shows, and in Acts chapter 18, he talks there to early people in Ephesus. He brought with him Priscilla and Aquila. We'll come back to them in a moment. I wonder what Paul would have seen when he came into that city. Many years ago, I took a group of students from from uh, Ballyclare to Japan. I had one boy who lived on a farm in East Antrim. He'd never been in an airport, never mind on a plane. And I took him from Ballyclare to Tokyo. Can you imagine the impact of walking out of the townland of Ballyclare, which, by the way, is the center of the world, into Tokyo. And that would have been almost a similar experience for those who would have arrived in the city of Ephesus. I'm not so sure about Paul, because he was widely traveled, but anybody else coming into the city of Ephesus would have been absolutely marveled at what they saw. 
because this was a large city. It was the second, if not the third city, in the Roman Empire. And it had a quarter of a million people. When you think that Belfast and Greater Belfast is 350,000, it gives you an idea of the size of the city, a huge city by ancient standards. 10% of that population were Jews. They had a synagogue, if not synagogues. We see reference to it there. But that is a vast city. But what was in it? Well, it was the intersection of three main roads right across the region. And it was also the temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana. I will hear more about that later. But this building was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The people who actually saw it, and there's a record of a man who said he stood in absolute amazement as he looked at this significant building, a huge building, which they reckon was over 60 feet in height, whenever you take that as being 2,000 years ago. It had columns, it had gold, it contained a goddess. That's what the city was like. There's a library there today. The library wasn't there at the time of Paul. There were other libraries. But that's not all that he would have seen. He would have seen a cosmopolitan people. These three roads brought people from all over the Roman Empire. And they brought them into the city, and there would have been an absolute mixture of people. Now, if you were to pick up a newspaper in Ephesus, they didn't have them, by the way. But if you were to pick up a newspaper in Ephesus and you were to read the editorials of the day, the editorials of the day would have been talking about a significant problem, a political problem. It had been introduced by the Emperor Claudius a matter of years previously. And that was, how do you integrate all of these people, people from all over the Roman Empire, how do you make them one? How do you bring them into one grouping? How do you establish citizenship? How do you establish inheritance? How do you establish loyalty? How do you make them into family? And Claudius actually got up in the Senate in 48 AD and declared that he was determined to do this. And that would have been the talking point. And I'd leave that there and we'll come back to it later. But we had a huge city. We had a city which was huge in size, but also in people. And it was also Roman, a major Roman city. Rome was all over the city. Everywhere you looked, there would have been statues or inscriptions. And interestingly enough, right at the end of the period that we're talking about, the Roman emperor Domitian had a, a coin engraved and when he engraved that coin, he actually put seven stars around the coin to show that he was in control of his whole empire, including Ephesus. So it was a cosmopolitan, major city, which Paul visited and then left. Paul returned to Ephesus and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, 
John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is the first encounter, the Ephesian 12, they're known as. We don't know what their background was. We don't know if they were Jewish. We don't know if they were Gentiles. But they had been searching for the truth. And they had encountered Apollos, who was mentioned just prior to this reading. And Apollos had brought to them the baptism of John. And Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos, who was a very eloquent speaker, and they taught him about Jesus Christ. And they taught him about salvation. And it's probable or no, not historically confirmed, that Apollos influenced these 12 men and taught them about John's baptism, which he had been preaching. But Paul came along and found these 12 men, and he said to them, what have you received? Now, I'm not going to go back into John's baptism because Ben spoke about it two weeks ago in the Crescent here. But John's baptism pointed to a future pointed to one who was to come. And that's what Paul taught these men. He says, I'm pointing you to the future, the Jesus Christ, the one who came. And when he explained to these 12 men, these 12 men became Christians. They placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their own and personal Savior. And when they placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their own and personal Savior, they were baptized and they were then received, according to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit. And so we have this small group of 12 men. Their background, names, gone. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn, and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And so he started to go into the synagogue, and he started to speak to the people in the synagogue, and then a hostility built up, and these 12 men, and he taught them, and the numbers were increasing, we know that, the numbers were increasing, and as he spoke to them, the hostility from the Jewish population grew, and he had to retire. Now, Paul was a tent maker. He continued to work. And the historians tell us that what happened was that Paul continued to do his work up till around about 10 o'clock in the morning, as was his normal. And then in the heat of the day, the lecture halls of Tyrannus and places like that there would have been vacated because they didn't have air conditioning. And if you can imagine the heat baking down on them, then the disciples and those who believed came into that hall and Paul continued to teach them. And they say they taught them from 10 o'clock in the morning to 4, according to historians. And so therefore, in that environment, Paul taught these early believers and he taught them what he will then consequently write in the book of Ephesians. But it's interesting that we also read this, that the churches of Asia command you. We read this in 1 Corinthians because we read that they are meeting in a house of Priscilla and Aquila. And so what happens is there is an assembly, there's a group, there's a congregation created in that city which initially 
meets in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila must have been fairly wealthy to be able to take on a meeting in their own home. And that is the meeting, that is the gathering that Paul is going to write to when he writes the book of Ephesians. So let's just re remind ourselves. Cosmopolitan city, a divided city. How do you integrate people? What is the role of a Roman? What is the role of a Jew in Ephesus? A Roman city. And now there is a small group meet. But things didn't go to plan. Because Paul writes to the Corinth church, where he, when he was in Ephesus, he wrote Corinthians. He says, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, that doesn't mean that he literally fought wild beasts. Some people think that Paul is talking about having a gladiatorial fight with wild beasts. They reckon Paul was five foot tall, so it's highly unlikely. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he had to engage with strong opposition here in this city, which was the household of the Diana. And he says there are many adversaries and he is talking about what is happening in Ephesus. We then have a rather lengthy account, an account of a riot in Ephesus. And we're going to read it in its entirety because it tells us so much about that city. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together, along with others employed in similar trades, and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man, Paul, has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess, worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. At last, the mayor was able to quieten them down, down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said. Everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple and have not spoken against our goddess. 
If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. I'm afraid we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government since there is no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them and they dispersed. When the uproar was over, Paul sent for the believers and encouraged them. And then he said farewell and left for Macedonia. Why is there such a lengthy account of a riot? Could they... Luke, when he was writing, just said, and there was a riot. And Paul was okay. And they left. Because Paul reached, faced opposition many times in his travels. Many times he faced opposition. Many times he faced death. And yet it's not recorded in any detail. Why is so much said in Acts chapter 18 about this riot because this is key it tells us so much about what the church of the Ephesians was facing first of all it's archaeologically accurate I don't know if you noticed but as each of the readings was taking place it was actually a, a photograph from Ephesus from each of the archaeological sites from what remains of Diana's temple is simple column or Artemis' temple. They have dug up and you have got the various goddesses of Artemis. You've actually got the very place of the riot, that massive theater. And the little place at the end, which seemed to be just a broken building, was the house of the clerk who intervened. So you've got archaeologically absolute evidence that the event took place. But that's not the primary reason. Luke is telling us about what they faced in that city. Because you see, this goddess, Artemis, brought in all the wealth, all the power, everything that Ephesus existed for surrounded this god and selling it. I don't know if you've ever been abroad and if you've gone to see a, a temple or an event Maybe you've been in India or the Far East or somewhere. And as you go up and you go up towards this temple, this particular in Japan where I grew up, you will see people selling things, all of them pertaining to that, that temple and the goddess that you're going to worship. It's their economy. Now, Artemis was the largest in the area. And so, therefore, it was absolutely vital that they were able to retain their wealth. So you're bringing in a new religion which is going to destroy our wealth. But that's not all. Whenever you think about it, they are bringing in opposition to their gods. He says, these gods, he says, are not of any value. These gods, he said, are not the real God. But it's interesting, whenever they come and they bring a charge against Paul, and the charge is quite simply that he's causing disruption, the clerk reminds them they never 
condemned our gods. And can I draw your attention to this very important point? Whenever Paul went to speak in Ephesus, he didn't stand up and criticize Artemis and the gods. He preached the truth. And the truth criticized the gods. And it is our job not to confront and antagonize and anger people, but to stand up and to present the truth to them. And the truth can stand in its own power with the Holy Spirit overcoming the goddesses of Artemis. And so we have this riot, opposition, anger, economy, religion, all there. And in the midst, you've got a household of Christians, probably growing, but they're facing major, major issues. So Paul left, but he comes back. And he returns to Ephesus on the return from his journey where he made his way around. And when he came back on his third missionary journey, he called the elders of the church of Ephesus to meet him outside the city. And when they came to him, he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So Paul has left. He's gone. He's gone to Antioch. He returns. He's on his third missionary journey. He doesn't go into Ephesus' city. He stops outside, and he tells the elders to come to him. He tells us one of the duties of an elder. Very clearly. Very precisely. That one of the clear duties established in the New Testament of an elder is to protect the church. Protected from two things. External opposition, which we've already alluded to. But more importantly, internal opposition. Paul says when he meets the elders, and he weeps as they leave them, because they know this is the last time he is going to meet them. He, he weeps as he leaves them. And he says, I'm leaving you because fierce wolves will come. T take you back to a couple of slides ago where he was fighting with wild animals. Now fierce wolves. And so they're going to have face this external opposition, this massive external opposition. But internally, there are going to be people who are going to start preaching and teaching that which is untrue. And you as elders are responsible for counteracting and defending that congregation. Today in the 21st century, we have exactly the same problem. External opposition. And internally, within to some churches, subtle nuances and subtle untruths that the church has to be defended against. And these men return back 
to Ephesus with this warning from Paul that wolves were coming. And then he wrote the book of Ephesians. He was in prison. He says that three times in the book, I'm in chains. He's attached to a Roman guard. The idea of house arrest was that he was attached to a Praetorium guard, but on the command of Caesar, he had to be within the presence of Caesar within one hour. That was the idea of house arrest. If he's commanded to be there, the guard couldn't take him out of his eyesight because he had to be there in one hour. And where he is there, he receives information about Ephesus and the Ephesians. And he writes this little book that we're going to study. And I, in my mind, take the book of Ephesians and divide it into three little sections. The first section is seated, the second section is walk, and the third section is stand. And you'll see that word repeated as you study it, seated. You see, what we have is our identity, seated in Christ. And when you remember what the Ephesians were facing, the problem that they were facing was, we all have got different identities. How do we all come together? Some of you are Jews. Some of you come from up there north. Some from Africa. As a matter of fact, the poet actually outlines all the differences in people who were in Ephesus. And he says, how do we bring you all together? And so he deals with their identity. He deals with their citizenship, a key Roman word. He deals with their family. They're adopted. He deals with their inheritance. He deals with their union. He deals with bringing them all together because this was the problem, the contemporary problem that Ephesus was facing. How do we bring all these different people together from all sorts of backgrounds? Paul says, here is the mystery of the church. Here's what makes a church so different. That people from all backgrounds, all nations, all languages are all brought together in union. Their identity is in Christ. And even as I look out in this congregation, we see identity in Christ. This is unique. This makes it unique. We don't have laws compelling us. We don't have rules and regulations compelling us. We don't insist we do this, we do the other. We have this identity in Christ. And Paul, using the languages of the Romans and identity, introduces the first three chapters. You're chosen. You're adopted. You have an inheritance. You're one. You're one body. You're one building. You're all together. You see, the big thing was, who am I in this church? Are the Jews better than me? I come from Ethiopia. What about me? Paul says, in Christ, we are one. And when he tells people to be, that they're adopted, when you are adopted in Roman society, a key word, you, you leave the past behind. You reject it and you walk in the newness of life. You're no longer your old family. You're your new family. 
and you walk accordingly. And so in the second section, Paul sits down and he tells them how they should behave in this city. Sexual immorality was prevalent. Prostitution was the norm. Illegal transactions were common. Idolatry was all over the place. Roman governance was oppressive. You could go on in the list. And Paul says in the next section, look, as Christians, with your new identity, here's how you've got to live. But stand up. Put on your armor. There's a battle coming. And he takes us back to that battle, fighting with wolves, fighting with animals. And he says to Timothy later on, a couple of years after writing the book, here's what he says, and I urge you when you are going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? Because to teach, they are teaching different doctrines and not to devote themselves to endless myths and, and endless genealogies and promote speculations. And so the problem is still there three years later. Even after Paul has written this letter and he's spoken to the Ephesians, there's still this ongoing problem within the church because those have come from outside. We don't take a little break from the New Testament and look at history because we historians tell us that John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, moved and lived in Ephesus. Historians tell us that John was in Ephesus when he wrote the book of Revelation. I want you to think for a moment. Could you imagine a better taught church? Paul, Priscilla Aquila, Apollos, Timothy, John. They were taught. They were taught about what they were to face. They were taught about how they were to cope with what they were to face. There's a problem. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become, near, become, become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. John, on the island of Patmos, a member 
of the church of Ephesus, an apostle, a man who saw the coinage of Dalmatian, the emperor, a coin with seven stars, saying that he ruled the world, sees a man in amidst the golden lampstands, a risen Christ. And the Christ, and Christ in the risen lampstands, holds seven stars. An emperor who says, I reign supreme. And Christ who says, I reign over all. And he speaks to John. And John writes his letter to the Ephesian church, to his fellow believers. Look at where you've come from. Look at all the issues you've faced. Look at how you've stood up against it. Look how you've fought for the truth. Look how you've dealt with the Nicolaitans. And by the way, if you read on in, you'll find a definition of the Nicolaitans. They're ones who are blasphemers, idolaters, and sexually immoral. We don't know anything more about them than that. You stood up against them. You fought for the truth. You stood at the ramparts. You engaged with the enemy. You fought and fought. And you would have thought at that stage that the Lord Jesus Christ would have said, well done. But this I have against you. You left your first love. And the lamp stand will be removed. The lampstand will be removed. Within decades, the church in Ephesus was gone. We don't know what happened to it. It disappears. We do know that 200 A.D., Heresy was in its place. Lampstand gone. They stood against the bulwark. They energetically engaged. They were busy. They were fighting. They were doing what they were supposed to do. But they had lost their first love. And the Lord says, I have this against you. In Greece, they had a race. They had many races. They had the marathon, for example. But it was a special race. Everybody lined up in the start. And everybody had a torch which was lit. And you had to keep your torch alight until you finished the race. You had to keep it burning. It wasn't speed. It wasn't engagement. It wasn't energy. It was protecting that flame as you journeyed on the racetrack so that it was a light when you finished the race. As a congregation, we've been here for 150 years 
in various forms. We have been busy. We have been engaged. We have been a bulwark against that which is outside. We have contested that with that which has come from inside. We have done all. And we've got to each individually, myself included, have I protected that flame? Have I completed the race? Or have I left my first love? It's a challenge, a massive challenge to us all. Busyness does not equate to Christian love. Think about that. Being busy does not equate to demonstrating that first love, a genuine love that brings so many together from so many regions, which brings together people from afar and near and brings them into one body, one union under the leadership of Christ, the head of Christ, who live distinctly and differently and stand for the truth, but still recognize that He is Lord. May the Lord restore in us our first love as an individual, as congregations. And as we run the race, keep that light, keep that flame. So we have looked at a church from beginning to end recorded for us in the New Testament. Don't let us not be too critical or consider ourselves being critical. We're the same. As a matter of fact, they are the jewel in the crown. They have achieved so much. They've left us so much. And yet they only lasted a hundred years. And right throughout the New Testament, you have a time-lapse history of the birth, the growth, the weeding, the weed killer, and the shrivel. May God protect each of us and we as a congregation as we seek to serve him. Father, we thank you for the example of the church in Ephesus. We thank you for what it has brought to us and what we have learned from it. We thank you, our Father, from the book of Ephesians, which cements and actually establishes our faith. We thank you for the union it brings between each other. We thank you for the instructions it gives. But our Father, help us each individually and corporately to consider our first love. That moment when we placed our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that moment when we turned to Him, may that glow, may that transformation, may that growth be evident in each and every one of us. We thank You, our Father, that You through your Son, establish that church. And today, your Son 
is the one who stands among the seven stars, the one who is ruler of all. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ,